0: Testing, one, two, three. I want to thank uh, Juliet and uh, Joe and, uh, and Stephen, you two, for all the music. The staff decided this week that uh, uh, henceforth they shall be the Trafton family singers. Uh, and we're so delighted for uh, the gifts God has given them and uh, giving them to us. Joe uh, does some little things like conducting symphonies and operas and uh, writing music uh, over uh, in Germany, so uh, pray for him as he uh, labors there. And somewhere back there, I just saw his face. Uh, Barry Noel, Melanie, would you guys stand up? I haven't done this since I've been here, but uh, Barry was uh, my associate pastor uh, in Tulsa for 10 years, uh, did a church plant in Philadelphia, and I had the privilege of preaching his installation in Lesby, Maryland, uh, at a PCA church, uh, 2019. September and uh, their uh, kids are uh, filed away at a house somewhere with a pool and uh, they decided to drive up uh, as they're taking a week's vacation so delight to have them them here thanks much let's pray Father uh, how amazing that we can call you father how wonderful that. By the Holy Spirit, in the womb of Mary, the eternal Son took on flesh. And that by you, Holy Spirit, uh, our Lord Jesus, after the cross, was raised from the dead. We praise you. We worship you. We ask you to teach us about yourself, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had several comments and some questions uh, these last three weeks as we did something very different. Of a more, uh, I mean, all sermons are theological, but uh, we've been focusing in on the tri unity of God and doing things in ways that I knew would be different for us and for me, uh, from what I usually do, and, uh, and personally, uh, as a pastor, uh, those that have been involved uh, with the staff and uh, the search committee know I'm an adventurer, so I like to try things uh, differently at times to stretch us a little bit. And I think I told you once already, let me make sure I get it in somewhere here during this interim, that uh, part of the job, uh, the calling of an interim, uh, is to let you take your irritations and emotions out on him Uh, so you don't take him out on the pastor when he comes. Uh, I say that partly in jest, but partly it's true. I mean, it's a huge transition emotionally for a congregation more than they know. Um, And uh, therefore, uh, if any of you at times find yourselves uh, irritated or surprised by what I do, uh, it might be you, or it might more likely be me. Uh, If it's me, then you don't have to put up with me for too long. Uh, If it's you, then I give you the admonition. This is training ground for you to deal uh, with your affections and your emotions, uh, your readiness uh, to gird up your mind and will to receive your new senior pastor. Because if he is strong, and I know the search committee wants someone that is collegial but strong, uh, he's going to irritate you too. Whether I have or not, I don't know. I'm not... Presuming for everybody, this morning as we do end this series and get back to some more individual texts, uh, I want to uh, to clarify uh, a little bit that um, some of the things we've talked about from some of the questions. We're going to do it by looking at two questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, three short paragraphs from the Westminster uh, Confession. We'll race through it. Uh, and by the way, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we haven't talked a lot about, uh, is the PCA's official. Confession. Uh, and Westminster affirms the Nicene Creed. So in taking you into the Nicene Creed the last few weeks, I've really been giving you what the Westminster Confession teaches. Uh, and in case you think I've been bold criticizing some of the errors I see creeping into the church, really all I've been doing is upholding the standards that every PCA pastor and te- ruling elder uh, and deacon is already subscribed to. Uh, I wouldn't be so bold if I didn't have a uh, uh, a couple thousand years of church history and our own standards behind what I have been telling you. Let's dig in. Some summary things and reminders. We've talked about a lot about the eternally begotten Son and what that means. I want to focus on comparing and contrasting what the Scripture teaches us, teaches us about the Son of God in eternity and the Son of God in the Incarnation. And this is on the outline, so it might be helpful to just read along and use both the ear gate and the eye gate. Uh, in the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 2 of God and, the Holy, and of the Holy Trinity, and paragraph or section 3, it says this, In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Then it speaks of the origins of each of the persons within the triune Godhead. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Eastern Church and the Western Church fought over that phrase. We're not going to go there. A brief word about that paragraph and then some comments about three short passages that are printed on your outline. Uh, First, this is only one section of chapter 2. So Westminster uh, says uh, more about the Holy Trinity than uh, just this one paragraph. Uh, In the eternal God, Scripture reveals, are three persons but one substance or essence, the three co-equal. Another way of approaching that is that God's attributes are not separate from His essence. We don't talk about God's essence, His substance, without talking about His attributes. And the attributes aren't divided up between the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, They are equal amongst all of them. And some of His attributes uh, we can have communicated to us, a theological word, in limited ways. Uh, Other aspects of who He is... His eternity, His self-existence, uh, theologians call incommunicable. That means they're because He's divine. We can't begin to touch them. The earlier universal creed simply expressed what the churches were already teaching. Uh, it's, this is crucial. Don't miss this. The three persons, Scripture does not define by the word person as modern psychological personalities. But it defines them, I think, in a good way of summarizing Scripture only in terms of their source within the Godhead. That's what's in this paragraph. Thus, the prepositions of and from. The Father is of none. The Son is begotten of, has the same nature as the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. So when we talk about the three persons, we're really talking about there there are three persons in a God-only sense of person that exist within the triune Godhead. If you try to make comparisons with that, which the church has been doing for 2,000 years, stop. All of the analogies don't work. You know, the thing about uh, uh, three forms of water, I won't even go into the science of that. Uh, We all were taught it somewhere, hopefully still in school. But it doesn't apply to the Trinity because it doesn't deal with the singular, simple nature of God's substance. We looked at before at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is on your outline. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son, there's that preposition again, from the Father, full of grace and truth. I remind you, in case you weren't here or need to be reminded, I do, that translators, when they choose between the older English word only begotten or the more contemporary, unique, or only, one and only, either way, the meaning flows from the reality that this son is from the Father, begotten from the Father, and he naturally the Father naturally, by his nature, passes on sonship in his eternal nature. I ask you a question. Is there a difference between an earthly fast father passing on an earthly nature and the eternal God passing on an eternal nature? I hope you're already saying yes, it's really not all that complicated. But we've got to think about the fact that God is totally different from us. We didn't exist, whereas God has always existed. God created us. God created time. And so the son is unique. He's only begotten because begottenness is a way of expressing birth from an eternal nature. But it's not a matter of time that he was born, but before he hadn't been born. He's eternally begotten. He's eternally of the Father, from the Father. Matthew 28:19, a verse on your outline. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that name is singular? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one God with one name, and we can call him God or we can call him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's saying the same thing in terms of what Scripture reveals about what God is like. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, to get at just one other aspect of this before we move quickly to the next uh, short thing from Westminster. Uh, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here we see attributions of one attribute to individual persons of the Godhead. But surely grace is not sourced alone... In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father also is gracious. We read it this morning. The Son is also gracious. Love is not sourced in God or in the Father alone. Fellowship is not from the Holy Spirit alone. But we can talk about each of those things. So, even in the way that the Scripture talks about the attributes, it's talking, and we could go to passage after passage. We're not going to do it. But those are a sampling. What's such a confession? Chapter 8, section two, of Christ the Mediator. Now we go to the Incarnation. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof yet without sin being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. That means the two natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were not mixed. But in a way that is the mystery of mysteries, we're in one person. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? So the eternally begotten God is of the same eternal substance as the Father and the Son, One nature, three persons defined only by their source. And the contrast with the incarnation is that he who is eternal, the Son, and complete in the Godhead now takes on a human nature with its properties yet without sin. Born of woman by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is born of Mary's human substance. So in the Lord Jesus you have an eternal nature of the eternal God and you have the human nature of Mary's substance. And the creeds and the confessions say one person, two natures that are not mixed. That's important. We'll see how practical it is in just a minute. So we now find in the unique Christ two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, together without conversion, composition, or confusion. And by becoming the God-man, very God and very man, he's the only mediator between a holy God and a rebellious humanity look at uh, Colossians 2 on your notes verse 9 for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily it's a mystery the fullness of deity from the fullness of God and the eternal son now dwells in a body the reality of the God man his divine nature is veiled remember we studied Philippians 2 the son veils his eternal nature still there but it's veiled Nevertheless, the fullness of deity abides in him, and given his uh, sinless fleshly nature is real humanity. Heidelberg Catechism, question 33. Somebody asked me a question this week that led me to this. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we are also the children of God? That's a great question. Why is Jesus called the only begotten Son when we're also called as believers the children of God? This is practical stuff. The answer, because Christ alone is the eternal natural Son of God. We are children of God by adoption through grace for his sake. There is one unique eternal Son that has the eternal nature of God. if Mary were sitting up front, she's sitting in the back, I'd ask you if she's ever been in doubt that I don't have the nature of God. It wouldn't take her long to say, I can give you too many examples that show that that's not true. But Jesus is the, the eternal son, is the natural son of the divine father. He has the father's divine nature. We are not thus natural children from God. No one but the eternal word son could be. We are adopted daughters and sons. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In that verse, Paul affirms both that God is one, and he affirms the incarnation. So woven through the New Testament, everything we've been saying these last weeks is all over the place. It's not in one verse. If you just keep reading, which I highly recommend, you one of the great weaknesses of Christians' Is we don't read, we have so many books to read. Publishers publish so many books. Uh, I drive my wife nuts. She now says I have to get rid of two hardback books for every electronic book I buy and to buy mostly electronic because the house isn't big enough and she put in all kinds of new shelves when we moved into it. But we really need to be reading through books of the scripture, chapters at a time, letting it sink in so we start seeing the connections and we're not easily led astray. Here's an important text. This came up in a question to me this week, too. Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The question was a great question. You know, if if Jesus is God, you know, why does he have a different will from the Father? I mean, why is he asking the Father to take away the cross? Well, that's the doctrine of the Incarnation. One person, the God-man Jesus, with two natures, the eternal nature, the nature from the substance of Mary. The eternal nature veiled, Philippians 1:2. Jesus, depending, living in the substance of Mary as a human without sin, nevertheless cries out to God. Because in his humanity... He suffers. There's a mystery there, but that is what the Scripture teaches over and over and over again. If you don't understand one person in the Incarnation but two natures, then when you get to these passages passages in Hebrews, you're not going to understand them, and you're going to make the mistake we've been talking about the last two or three weeks. You're going to try to read some of the earthly stuff back into the eternal nature of Christ, and it's going to lead you off on tangents. Second main point, the Holy Spirit is eternally spirated from the Father and the Son, and we're going to deal with this much more quickly than I would like, but I want to get to the application. The Nicene Creed says, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. Heidelberg Catechism, question 53. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? Answer: First, that he is co-eternal with God. He is co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that he is also given unto me, makes me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and shall abide with me forever. I love that. Read the Westminster Confession. We need to have a class on it around here sometime if there hasn't been many in recent years. But even though it's not the official PCA uh, Confession, read the Heidelberg Catechism, Catechism of Questions and Answers. Heidelberg has the theology, but it's so practical. The, the answers do what this question and answer do. They teach the doctrine, and then they tell you the significance. The Holy Spirit is God, but He also comforts me. He also ministers to me. He's the other comforter that Jesus sent, even though he is also the eternal God. The Athanasian Creed says, The Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit. The Son Almighty and the Holy Spirit. Both of them are Almighty also. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty, one God. I love two short quotations that are on your outline from Augustine and from... uh, Bavank in his Reformed Dogmatics, one a long, long time ago, one more recent. For to God it is not one thing to be and another to be a person, but it is altogether the same thing. Just as for him to be is to be God, thus also for him to be is to be personal, Father, Son, and Spirit. Bavank writes In each of the three persons, the divine being is completely coextensive with being Father, Son, and Spirit. It's just another way of saying Father, Son, and Spirit each contain the fullness of God. God isn't divided up into three. He isn't one, but only appears to be three. There are three persons in the sense of their being sourced out of the Father and out of the Father and the Son that are within the Godhead. And just one short thing regarding the Spirit. I think I put this on your outline. Let me just double check. Uh, I did. The Spirit, think about all the ways the Spirit is talked about. The Spirit is the breath of God, the gift of God, and the giver of gifts. We must be born again or from above by the Spirit who is, think of all the names, He is the Spirit of Christ. He is the Spirit of God, Galatians 4, 6. Christ is raised by the Spirit of holiness, raised from the dead. Grace, love, and fellowship belong to and are given by the triune God, but our fellowship is with God is of the Holy Spirit. So, as we bring this all together, an application. The more we behold God's triune wonder, the more the grace which the Son Almighty pours upon us by the Spirit shines. Think about that. The bigger God is in your eyes, the more the grace and the other things that you receive will be to you. If you make God small, and human beings and humanity have in a thousand different ways, 10,000 different ways, over the centuries been trying to make God smaller to cut Him down to size. And what do we end up doing? We end up making ourselves small. Until we're raising generations in our own country who are being told that life has no ultimate meaning. Because God has become so small, there's nothing that ultimately defines who we are. There's nothing ultimately behind everything. As God in glory shines, basking in His love, redemption, and adoption, we shine as His creatures and His valued daughters and sons. I couldn't think of a better way to bring this to a close than Telling you one story and then applying it uh, from the life of D.A. Carson. Could say a lot about Carson. I think he's emeritus now, but one of the finest New Testament scholars of the 20th century, Trinity Div School in Chicago. Heard a recording of his back in around uh, 2010 from an incident that happened in 2008. Uh, He was invited uh, to be on the Larry King Live TV show. Some of you. Are old enough to remember Larry King and that live broadcast out of Chicago, some fascinating interviews. Uh, and he was in Chicago with King and there were other guests on live feeds from around the country. He was the only, as he put it, evangelical talking head in the group. And King sent a limo for him uh, to drive down from the north shore of Chicago to the station. And he was in the back seat, didn't pay much attention to the driver, just going through his notes because he didn't want to look like a fool on national TV on the topic. But on the way home, he realized he'd ignored the driver earlier. So he engaged the man, and he discovered him to be 58 years old and Jewish. And he asked about the driver's family and was told that he had a second wife, 29 years old. He'd divorced his first wife. And as literally as I could type, here's the conversation in Carson's words i think you'll see the connection to what we've been teaching driver continuing i have a daughter choking up she's 34 years old and she's now brain dead from an accident on snow covered kansas roads a few weeks ago her vehicle flipped she isn't going to make it we're waiting to pull the plug Carson, how are you coping with all that? Driver, I've decided that stuff happens. You know, what, what can you say? Stuff happens. You just can't get too emotionally tied up with it. It, it just happens. Carson, you mean just like the Holocaust? Stuff happens? The driver exploded, which Carson expected him to. The driver, I lost both my parents in the Holocaust. That was evil. That was vile from beginning to end. Carson, so you do have a moral category for outrage then, do you? The driver said, of course. Carson, then why aren't you outraged at your daughter's death? Driver, are you saying it was evil? Carson, of course it was evil. I'm not saying that she died because she was more evil than anybody else. We're all under a sentence of death. But according to the Bible, death isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's all the result of our rebellion before God and the sentence that hangs before all of us. You ought to be outraged. The Apostle Paul actually calls death the last enemy. You ought to be outraged. Then Carson said to him, tell me, would you view things differently if you really did believe with all your heart that there is life after death? Driver. Oh, I know just what you mean. My daughter, she has a wonderful garden in Kansas, lovely butterflies. I think she'd like to come back as a butterfly. Carson, in his own mind, passing each other, not even on the same planet. Have you had any experiences like that, Carson asks, in your witness, where suddenly you realize that you're not even in the same conversation? Do you hear the gospel in Carson's questions? A big God, totally different from us, who nevertheless chooses to become incarnate, gives Carson the big gospel that leads him to ask those kinds of questions. It's not just about needing to be forgiven psychologically. It's about which story, which world, which reality are you living in? What, what are you hoping for? Let me put it this way, kind of outlining the argument. Stuff doesn't just happen. No. Life is not meaningless. You're not insignificant. You're valuable. There's a plan, and the plan points to a planner. Two, stuff doesn't just happen without meaning, without there being conflict between good and evil. Sometimes I wish that our translators uh, in the prayer we prayed this morning that Jesus taught his disciples would use the marginal translation note rather than what's there. Deliver us. uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Greek can be translated either way, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. I think we've shied away from the phrase translated as deliver us from the evil one because it raises all kinds of questions to outsiders. Yeah, it ought to. There's a battle going on. And while it's complicated, it's real. And without the battle, we're sometimes just playing games. We're just drifting, playing with our toys, and then we die. Death doesn't just happen, it's the result of our rebellion from God. It brings a just death sentence that hangs before each of us. If you have moral outrage against evil, then you ought to be outraged against death. And God has come to us already. He lived in the world by His Spirit and Word and creation, in the law of Moses in prophecy and wisdom. He's come in the person of His Son, the eternal Word, becoming flesh. He, with human nature, walked in obedience in place of our rebellion and weakness. In Romans 1:18 and Galatians 6:7, write them down if you're taking notes, Romans 1:18 Galatians 6:7. Uh, I heard an interview the other day, I don't have time to tell you about it, but somebody said, "Where is God in all this?" Pick the topic. Well, if you read Romans 1:18 and Galatians 6:7, you find out that God is right here doing what he promised. That at times he delivers men and nations and cultures gives them up to their own ways. My friend Steve Brown used to say, He greases the tracks that we choose to run on. And so when you see evil flourishing, you know that it's a sign that God is active and He's let us go. But He's done it out of grace that we might see the fruit of our own ways and realize that the coming of Jesus is bigger and more important than anybody ever thought. Because Jesus came and bore the judgment of God's justice in our place, and rose from the dead as the firstborn of a new creation. One person with two distinct natures. Thus, think about this. When the triune God who didn't need to create you in the first place, I don't like to think about that. God did not and does not need me. but He chose to create me and to create you. And then when He comes in the person of His eternal Son, taking on flesh, willingly laying aside His glory to bear the judgment, I am due. That ought to tell me that I'm more than a butterfly. So this big gospel, if you will hear it, Tells you about a love that is unfathomable. A being cherished that is hard to lay hold of, isn't it? If you feel alone and, and unloved and you want to be cherished, be thankful for the people on earth that cherish you. But realize there is a cherishing in the gospel that is beyond anything that any human being can even begin to fully understand. And it's a priceless redemption by the eternal Son. So I say this to you in closing. Let go. Not completely. It doesn't mean you throw away the things in your life, but in your heart, in your affections, in terms of ultimate values, throw away everything you're clinging to compared to Christ. Oh, your song, Juliet, the lyrics. Throw away the hard stuff and even the good stuff compared. To give me Jesus. Because the stuff we cling to is not as much as we think and it won't satisfy ultimately. And God in Christ will give you, God in Christ will give you more than you've ever dreamed. And have you noticed that God keeps his promises? even when his promises lead to a cross. Let's pray. Father, you are with the Son and the Spirit, the triune God. We don't understand it. We can't take it all in. But you have told us in your word over and over and over again. Holy, 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 Holy are you. Amen.